just whacking it normally. <laughs> Welcome back to Seeds and Their People. I'm Chris Bolden Newsom, farmer and co-director of Sankofa Farm at Bartram's Garden in sunny southwest Philadelphia. And I'm Owen Taylor, seed keeper and farmer at True Love Seeds. We're a seed company offering culturally important seeds grown by farmers committed to cultural preservation, food sovereignty, and sustainable agriculture. This podcast is supported by True Love Seeds and now also you. Thank you so much to our newest Patreon members, Lisa, Seeding Good, and Twilight Image. If you'd like to support our storytelling and seed keeping, you can do so at patreon.com slash trueloveseeds. Like last episode, we're going to start this one by answering some listener questions. Let me play a clip I recorded last night. Okay, our next question comes from Dusty Swamp Provisions. Why are seeds so cute? But in my memory because I just looked back at it, it was, what are the cutest seeds? So we're going to start with what are the cutest seeds, and we have a special person here to share with us his opinions. Who are you? I'm Brian. I am six. And what are the cutest seeds? Thanks for being here, Brian. You're welcome. The cutest seeds, I think, which is beautiful too, is a butter bean. What does it look like? A butter bean looks... Kind of brownish, some and the the rice is like brownish, redder or brown, and the little parts sometimes are white. Kind of looks like frost, but it's black a little. And I think a calendula seed is beautiful because it, it's spiky. And I think a calendula seed is cool because a calendula seed have spikes. And I think. A calendula seeds have spikes because it can protect itself. And a honeybean, I think, is beautiful. It looks brownish in it, and it looks like it has an eye, but it's little. And that's all I think that are beautiful seeds and cute seeds. Well, thank you for your opinions on this. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Well, there you have it, folks. You heard it here first. America's newest radio commentator. He is obviously a wealth of information and quite ready for the job. So look for him soon in probably about 18 years to be coming to you live and direct from WURD in Philadelphia or the BBC in London or NPR in D.C. or any of those other stations because he is awesome and is already deeply involved in the world of seeds, and he is our pride and joy. So the real question was, why are seeds cute? Can you can you help answer that question? Okay, well, you know, baby, I really don't think of seeds as cute. Um, 
cute to me is like a floppy puppy or kitten. Mm, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I would register them as cute. I find them very cute. So I appreciate I appreciate the question. I mean, of course, they're deeply beautiful and meaningful. But when I am pulling seeds out of plants in the field or looking at them in jars on the shelf, I do find them preciously cute and i think it's similar to how babies are cute and puppies floppy puppies like you said and it makes me want to protect them Mm. you know and a lot of i I feel like the word for seed saver or seed saving in other languages is even seed guardian or seed protector and seed keeper i think that's yeah that's what that registers as to me a seed keeper keeper is a protector as well as someone who saves or collects something yeah, and I don't save them or keep them because they're cute, but it certainly helps. Another listener asked, how do you choose which seeds and people make it into the True Love Seeds catalog? You want to start us off? Well, I can tell you that for the seeds, generally we are looking for uh, seeds that are culturally important, um, as we always say, that are relevant to an individual farmer's or grower's own ethnic and cultural background and experience. So we are always looking for seeds that tell a story. And in reality, every single seed tells a story and fills in the gap for some persons who is looking um, for more depth and context to their own cultural story, especially in in, in this um, so-called melting pot of a country. Um, so for the seeds, yeah, we generally are, are looking for those seeds. And oftentimes we'll have people uh, who will suggest seeds to us, culturally important seeds. And we consider that to be the seed itself calling out to be dispersed, to be reconnected to its people through that communication with that individual. But maybe you could say more about how we choose the people that make it into our seed catalog. That's that's. Well, I think that's the right question because we don't choose the seeds. We choose the people mm. and the people choose the seeds, as you were referring to. And we, we really identify... We, we try to find people who are already in our network or outside of our network who are doing the essential work of cultural preservation through agriculture. And we'll ask first, what seed tells your story? And that farmer decides which seeds to add to the catalog with our, with our help and guidance and sometimes. But we're not trying to curate a specific catalog, but rather build relationships with farmers who have relationships or who are rebuilding relationships with their seeds, their beloved ancestral seeds. And so that's how our catalog expands. Just like Chris was saying that we kind of look, take the lead of the growers and they suggest the seeds. So thanks for that question. On Instagram, seed and weed and reap asked, is there a DIY way to get seedlings phosphorus? This is a question a little out of our league because we're we're a different type of different type of farmer. We're not really trained horticulturalists. We're not Mike McGrath here on You Bet Your Garden. You can buy uh, different soil amendments. Go to your plant store, your nursery, and, and maybe ask some questions because I'm sure that there are different amendments. I know that there are rock-based and mineral-based amendments that people use so yeah well this inspired me to look it up i mean but i think my first answer is that we don't do that yeah we we are somewhat holistic in our approach in that we use a good trusted 
you know, seed starting mix that has a good mix of organic materials. And we do a lot of compost application at our farms. We really focus on soil health in a holistic way through adding organic matter, through a no-till approach. But I did look it up. I will say that first I looked at Brian O'Hara's no-till intensive vegetable gardening book because he's a friend of ours. He's a grower for our catalog. I worked for him for a couple years up in Lebanon, Connecticut, and he wrote the book on no-till farming. And he's really honed in on the management of nutrients, micronutrients and minerals, and uh, also from a holistic approach. And he he talks about phosphorus quite a bit in his book. So I'm going to try to distill what I learned saying this is not from personal experience. Again, we are not professionals in this area. At all. But I will say, thank you for the question because it helped me to understand it a little more. Phosphorus is something that really helps with plant growth in general. It helps with sugar and starch formation, energy and nutrient transfer. It helps with root growth, which I can see why you might want to apply it at the seedling phase. But it especially helps with flowering, which makes me nervous about applying it at the seedling phase Mm -hmm. because it pushes a plant towards flowering and it can even push it towards fruiting. But what I read is people apply it, especially when they want to kind of push a plant to the flowering stage. Uh, Though, you know, a lot of people, it seems, do put it in the beginning of the year, in the spring, into the soil. You know, it's very stable in the soil um, and it's not very available to the plants. It's bound up by other minerals yeah other elements so it can be hard for the plant to make use of it so one thing that brian mentioned in his book was that the more bioactive your soil is especially with fungal networks Mm -hmm. the more the phosphorus will be soluble and available to the plant roots and so if you really focus like i said even though we we're not doing this intentionally for phosphorus but on feeding the soil with life, you know, increasing the biological activity, especially fungal, which I know from previous reading is kind of the dominant biological activity in forests versus, you know, uh, field soils where it's more bacterial. It's always both. Yeah. yeah, But, But a lot of times people will bring in biological activity from the forest my um, ecosystems into their field soils mm-hmm. to increase the fungal activity, which of course helps make many things more soluble in the soil for the roots and the plants to take up. Like Chris said, there's definitely rock phosphorus, soft rock phosphorus, like Kenny G. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, thank you. You of a certain age will know who he's talking about. <laughs> or Phil Collins. And then... <laughs> But the biggest thing for, that I looked up for DIY is that people will take bones. Yeah, bone meal is is one of the more common mineral applications for that. But again, you know, I think as you said earlier, it's very stable. Even with bone meal, it's not something that you put it in the ground and the plant just soaks it up. Phosphorus is one of those minerals that, you know, by design, leaches out slowly into the soil and I, I I think I would really agree with what you were saying earlier we, we practice regenerative agricultural techniques which always assumes the sacredness of the soil and that that's where the life is and that if we are just one more members uh, of, of the constellation of the field 
uh, in which we're working, a great part of our job is to just create the conditions by which there is a, a soil health, uh, soil wholeness. And again, I think when uh, having a focus on wholeness means that that you will have all of those minerals uh, present and available and that it, it's a process, right? Um, it's not something that happens in one year. And I think even with the application of these rock phosphates uh, and, 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 and bone meal and all the kelp meal and all of these other things, of course, you know, green uh, sand and all of this stuff, you, you, it takes a while, you know, it doesn't, you know, again, this is farming, this is not, and this is, this is one of the things that I think that our work and the work of so many other farmers, God bless them, uh, in this country and, and around the world, and indeed our ancestors, you know, uh, is really focused on, which is, um, that, that our job is to reverence the soil and to reverence it by making sure that we keep it covered, that we are keeping a closed loop system, uh, you know, of, 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 of the things that come out of our field and, and returning them uh, after that sacred process of composting. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that again, I would emphasize that the focus is on uh, total health, uh, on wholeness, and, and less, I think, on, you know, sort of isolating particular minerals for uh, a desired purpose. Uh, I think that that's something that we really, really, really try to avoid in the work that we do. Yes, but that said, now I'm curious. And so what you could do is is do a, a soil test to test for nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, et cetera, calcium, all the, all the different things, yeah. uh, organic matter. And in the past, I've used UMass Amherst, you know, soil labs. It's pretty affordable and they give you a lot more information than other labs about what to do to, to amend. Uh, so you can test that. You can make your own bone meal. There's a lot of recipes online if you're meat eating house, which we are not. You can make, you know, fish fertilizer by, you know, on your own. And there's recipes online. Um, apparently manure has a lot of phosphorus. By what you mean animal manure? Animal manure, but also green manure. So you can grow yes. cover crops um, and turn them in, certain ones. And then, yeah, the, the thing about what I read is if you want a quick dose of phosphorus, then you do the liquid kelp foliar spray, mm. um, like seaweed, certain seaweeds. And that's quick, but it also quickly disappears. So you'd want to do both, mm. both, you know, soil level and leaf level. So I think that's enough on phosphorus. But thank you for that question. It was actually really interesting to go back into Brian O'Hara's book and, and, and look into this a little more. Yeah. And again, we do advise everyone to get a copy of Brother Brian's book. He is an awesome sage mentor, um, as well, of course, as his uh, wonderful, beautiful wife, Anita. And, and his, his daughter, daughter, Clara. And little Clara. <laughs> okay, finally, it's not long after St. Patrick's and St. Joseph's Day, and this means we are planting some of our first crops in the field. So let's talk about this just briefly, especially because it somewhat relates to our episode and that we're interviewing a pastor from the Catholic Church. Yeah. Well, what is it to say? I mean, we have this confluence of, of, of holy days. We have, uh, uh, as uh, Owen said, um, St. Patrick, Patriarch of Ireland, and let's never forget also uh, St. Bridget, whose feast uh, fell a little bit before that. But then we have the spring equinox, right? So uh, sort of the holiness of the earth, uh, wholeness of the earth uh, on that day. And then we have St. Joseph, St. Joseph, who um, in, for at least the past 1,000 years, I would say, has been very much associated uh, for some reason with Italy. But uh, and, and this is the same Joseph, by the way, in the Christmas story of uh, for those folks who have a question mark right now, we're talking about Joseph, Mary's husband, 
great association with all things uh, Italian, especially, but uh, also patron saint of dads, patron saint of carpenters, patron saint of uh, workers and of the international worker movement. Just an all-around wonderful guy. One thing that I really love, uh, particularly about the image of this saint, is that he really gives a different different version of, 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 of masculinity. He doesn't say a single word, apparently, uh, in the Bible, but uh, he's this protector figure. And he listens to his dreams and takes care of uh, the baby Jesus and uh, Mother Mary uh, through these dreams that he has, right? And, and which tell him what to do. And so what, one thing we're really excited about, of course, is his association with fava beans. Yes, Italians love St. Joseph, especially Sicilians, but I think all Italians. And I was just listening to the Italian-American podcast all about St. Joseph's Day and its importance in New Orleans. Yeah, especially because of the Sicilian community, which apparently after emancipation, Sicilian men were recruited heavily yeah. uh, to work the fields. And so it was like 50 something thousand Sicilian men came and they brought with them the St. Joseph's kind of traditions with the St. Joseph altar, which will have a fava bean on the altar. And the reason is that in the Middle Ages or medieval times, there were a lot of droughts in Italy, in, in Sicily in particular. And it was also the time, like a resurgence, or like when St. Joseph was becoming very popular in that part of Italy. And people would pray to him around the drought, you know, and, and he came through. And they, they had a successful harvest, especially of fava beans. And so the fava bean became associated with him. People put it on the altar. People carry it in their pocket. And so we've made the leap and maybe this is something other people do, but to plant fava beans around that time. I mean, this is the time of year. Fava beans are one of the earliest crops to go in the ground, directly in the ground. And so, you know, tomorrow at the farm, uh, we'll be planting some fava beans from the Italian garden project that we got where they collect seeds from older Italians, uh, who are keeping traditional Italian gardens in America. And a lot of times they've already passed. So this is an important way to keep these varieties around that have been here sometimes a hundred years in Italian American gardens. And then that, you know, for the last many years, we, we've heard that St. Patrick's Day is the time to plant potatoes and peas, two very Irish or two very Irish crops. Mm -hmm. Of course, potatoes are from the Andes, but they've been associated with Ireland since the mid 1800s, at least. And, you know, my great grandmother, uh, Mary Lenehan, she is from Galway. And I have this letter from my grandfather to my dad in the early 90s about going to visit her village, visit the thatched roof house that she lived in with the with the dirt floors, get to see how close it was to the bay where they would fish and how they would grow cabbage and potatoes and so on. And so when I plant this, this the lumper potato, which is the same potato that would be grown you know, are very closely related to the potatoes during the Great Hunger and Gorta Moore, you know, the, the, what often is called the potato famine. It's very meaningful to me to plant it on a holiday that I know was important to my ancestors as well. And so St. Patrick's Day was last weekend, and we've found, and I've heard from other people, that St. Patrick's Day is actually slightly early, just slightly, for these things, because the peas could maybe rot in the ground. The potatoes are fine. Well, maybe in this part of the world, right? No, this is where we live. Well, 
Yeah. So I, so I, so I, because we live here, I decided to do it a week later. But it's also because we plant by the moon. And last week on the moon calendar was a no planting week. And so I was like, oh, that works out well because, you know, it gives us another week to, for the soils to dry out a little more, though it's been a very dry spring. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's why we plant around these holidays. Yeah, I, I I love um I love this uh as you were talking about um these uh, crops that are associated with uh, these hallowed uh, men Saint Joseph and Saint Patrick. It was occurring to me again just thinking about the movement of seeds, the movement of crops. Fava beans also are not from Sicily. Um, fava beans are not Italian. Um, I'm sure there are many old Italian guys who would fight you uh, to hear that, but. Um, from what I understand, fava beans are an African crop that were first domesticated or at least first identified as domesticated in Egypt. And so they traveled, you know, wasn't a very, well, it wasn't a super far jump across uh, the pond to get to Sicily, which is uh, tickling Italy, uh, uh, tickling Africa, of course. But, uh, you know, so so that's one thing that came to me. So, again, this I love the association of this this saint who also is not Italian. He's uh, afro uh, Asiatic, right? Now we're talking about, you know, Palestinian Jew, um, you know, uh, and, and then he's associated with fava beans. And I just love that connection. I love also how the peas and the potatoes, of course, also come from somewhere else. Uh, and Patrick also comes from somewhere else. You know, curiously, Patrick is not Irish, even though he's a patron saint of Ireland. So I love how these seeds sort of move and collect new stories. These crops go uh, around the world and get different associations. Uh, and I was really reminded uh, with the carrying of the fava beans because, of course, I, I, you know, our house has a great devotion to St. Joseph, pray for his intercession. But carrying the fava beans um, this week, uh, I had to switch out my fava bean. I switched out my black IP, which in my own, uh, you know, African-American culture is what we carry as a symbolic uh, protection and and sort of the eye of God, um, but switching out my black eyed pea for a fava bean. Maybe I should just have both of them in there and just have a stew in my pocket of beans. You should. Now for our feature presentation. This episode features Father Tom Mulally of Emmett, Michigan. He's a divine word missionary priest who lives and works in the Mississippi Delta at my home parish of Sacred Heart in Greenville. And we were there for the holidays. This is a couple of months ago. What was it? Christmas? Thanksgiving? Thank Thanksgiving because it was warm. But... Oh, yeah. Thanksgiving. And we were visiting your family. And we brought your mother, Mrs. Demelda Bolden Newsom, with us to the rectory of the church and interviewed the pastor. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it was a part of a sort of a neighborhood garden. So we were looking at my mom's gardens. Um, she has several gardens garden plots, uh, community garden plots that her and daddy are managing um, for the community. And there's one that's right across the street from uh, our church. Um, and so we were able to take a look at those gardens as well. And we were interested in talking to him because, you know, he grew up farming and gardening in a poor family in Michigan and really surviving off of the, the gardening that they did. You know, he had lost his father. You'll hear the story. But so we wanted to hear about what that was like for him, how that's influenced his life, you know, and talk to him about his 50, over 50 years working in Southern black Catholic churches. 
Yeah, yeah. I think uh, to me, one of the most powerful things about this is that this is a poor farm kid who has uh, gone to the Mississippi Delta, where uh, most folks have abandoned farming with it's, it's such a complicated history, of course, him being from the far north and then this in the deep south where all of those very visible legacies of slavery and forced work are still still so sort of apparent in 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 shadows um you know throughout the environment really interesting confluence of events of uh this farm kid from the north coming and trying to turn former farmers back to the land okay well let's transport you into the dining room around the table with the four of us and we're coming in right towards the end i pressed record right towards the end of an opening prayer lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil amen i'm a divine wood missionary priest and we have been working in the south among african americans since 1905 1906 and so I joined the Society of Divine Word in 1960, ordained a priest in 1970, and I've been in the South ever since, working among African-American Catholics, and when I came to Greenville in 08, among uh, Hispanic Catholics too. So that's my history. I came to Greenville in 2008, and Greenville was founded in 1913. By, by Father Elvishus Hake, Hake, SVD. And in 1920, the first seminary for African-American young men to study for the priesthood began in Greenville, Mississippi in 1920. We have a historical marker on our churchyard. And then the seminary went back to, was transferred to Bay St. Louis, Mississippi in 1923 because there was more Catholics down there and more people were open for black and white studying together. So that's how Sacred Heart began in 1913. The present day church was built in 1928 by Father Jacob, a year after the great flood. The great flood of Mississippi Delta began in 1927 with the break in the Dam just about five miles north of town by Indian Mounds. Greenville itself is has about 27,000 people. It had more before. It was the Queen City on the river, but sad to say, a lot of our industries went overseas or closed down. So that's why I came to the Delta. I came to the Delta in 08. I'm now 80 years old. I'm retired, and Father Sebastian is now the pastor. But I love the Delta, Mississippi. They're great people. In fact, I love all my parishes I uh, minister to. I've been 52 years as an SVD priest in four parishes only. In St. Martinville, Louisiana, and Notre Dame. I lead the Rosary in General, Louisiana. And then St. Peter's in Pine Bluff. And now I'm here in the Delta. So that's about who I am. I love my work. Amen. Wow. Well, that is, first and foremost, that's an impressive memory for dates. Uh, I, I don't think I could ever probably keep more than three of those dates. But It keeps you getting from Alzheimer's. 
Yeah. Okay. That's good. Remembering the day. So I'll remember that. I'll try to do that. I'll try to do that then as I get older. So you've done all of your work then. Since you were called to the priesthood, you've done everything in the South. Yes. All 52 years. All 52 years in the southern United States, in Mississippi and Arkansas and Louisiana. Now, you, you are originally a Yankee. Uh, you came from the north. Um, from Michigan. The great state of Michigan. Yes, they did. The Wolverine State. Never had a damn Wolverine in the whole state, but we still call it the Wolverines, though. <laughs> That's right, the Wolverine State. And what was, I'm, I'm just curious, when you, uh, when you told folks that you were going to be working in the South, particularly in that time, you said you came, you went to the seminary in 1960? Yes. Okay. And so, um, uh, when you told folks that you would be working in what was then the segregated South, and what were people's impression? What did you think? Or did you choose to come here, or did your superior send you here? I tell the story. I chose to come here, but I tell the history. I entered the seminary at the public school in Michigan and went to the seminary in, in Massachusetts, Odina Techni, in 1970, December the 19th. In September, the tradition of our society is that you write a letter to the Superior General asking three places where you would like to be sent. Our society at Vinewood has about 7,000 members. We work about 80 different nations. So I put down, number one, Philippines, two south, three Paraguay. I sent it in to our Superior General in Rome. That'd be by letter, of course. There was no Texas in those damn days, nothing. So I told my classmates, and one of my African-American friends from Bunky, Louisiana, said, Tom, why'd you do that? You'd be good to work in the South because you can get along with my people. And, and plus he says, you've been sick. And I, true, I've been sick in the seminary with two major surgeries. I'm not a linguist, and my good classmate Paul Scott from Australia says, Tom, Sandy's right, go south. I said, well, I've sent my letter in already. They said, that's okay. Our superior general was an American. He knew me personally. So I wrote a letter to my superior general, Father John Muzinski, and Father Muzinski wrote back to me, he says, Frater in those days, brother, I will never have sent you overseas. You're not a linguist, and you've been ill, and I'm gonna send you to the South. And that's how I came South. I came South in 1971, August 15th, Feast of the Lady of Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Came South. And then one of the young men in St. Martinville says, Father Malali, we'll take you downtown St. Martinville. Well, they took me to Baptiste Lounge. Well, the Baptiste Lounge, <clears throat> and they were shocked to see a priest with a black shirt on and everything. <clears throat> and he said, what do you want, Father? Well, I'm not a drinker. I said, I want a Bud Light. So I got myself a Bud Light. Then we went across the damn street and saw we went to Timmy's Lounge. And by God, by the time, Timmy, by the time I got to Timmy's Lounge, they had a cold beer, a Bud Light for me. I spent four years in St. Martinville. I drank every damn Bud Light that people gave me. Never touched never touch one again. 
So that's how uh, that's how I began at Notre Dame Catholic Church, the largest rural black Catholic church in the United States, about 4,000 members. So that's how I came there. And then I went to Germant, Louisiana, along by Yotesh. And there the people built a brand new church, uh, paid for it in cash, I laid the rosary. I mean, we worked hard for it. And we had a famous black sculpturist from, from Southern University, Frank Hayden, and he uh, sculpturized three beautiful pieces. I lay the rosary, the holy family, and the risen Lord. And sad to say, Frank Hayden is now deceased. Then went to Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, we opened a Catholic school up by the SSND and sisters and myself, and we had a great school. Then I went back to St. Martinville as pastor this time, not as associate, but as pastor, 12 good years down there. And then finally, I came up here in 08, and here I am in the Delta, the, the Delta of Mississippi. That's my little history. I wonder if you two could talk about the importance of this parish to your family. Yes. Okay. So my my mother and her siblings um, started out um, here at Sacred Heart. My, my grandfather was a Baptist minister, but they wanted their children to be in a faith-based school, even though it wasn't Baptist. And so my understanding of what happened is that they would work in the fields in the summertime, uh, the cotton fields, to pay for their tuition for the fall. And that's how they were able to go to school here. And my grandmother worked, you know, in, in, in people's houses, taking care of their children and, you know, doing some housekeeping. This was these are white families. These white are white houses. families. Yes. So that was how they were able to go, and they went all the way through to high school because there was a high school then. So when we came along, it was just already set in place for us to uh, to continue Catholic education. What years are we talking about? Now it had to be in the '60s. My memory isn't like Father. <laughs> Not at all. What do you think was the importance of of, of a Catholic school um, in the 60s when everything was still very, very much segregated in Mississippi? And I know that Greenville has had the fame of being one of the more progressive cities in the state of Mississippi. Mississippi history textbooks that I've read um, speak with a lot of hatred towards Greenville for that reason because it was a place where black people could be a little bit more successful, a little bit more free than in the rest of the state, certainly in southern Mississippi. But what do you think was the role, the importance of a Catholic school in a place where there were only a handful of Catholics? I think that from what I've read, um, when Father Hake came here, there were two families, two black families that were Catholic, and maybe a handful of, 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 of white families but what was the importance of this, of having a Catholic school in a place where most of the students were not Catholics? Well, as I was coming up, 
the Catholic school was the, the link of connecting community. You know, to me, it was where community was being built. Uh, we had the skating rink where people from not just from the Catholic school, but in the whole community of Greenville that were black, that came, they had a place to be. And then we would have different events that went on that people from the whole Greenville would attend. So to me, it was a, a building of the black community in a safe space that was welcoming. Having gone to other uh, events as I grew up, the ones that were held at Sacred Heart were just more um, welcoming, more friendly. Like you, you felt like you belonged, whether you were Catholic or not, you weren't treated any different. I mean, I saw the nuns helping community members that were not even Catholic people. I remember once my, my grandmother got sick, because I was raised by my grandmother. The nuns walked all the way <laughs> from the convent to our home and helped, you know, mom with uh, getting our clothes to get my clothes together and and making sure we were ready for school. And she would walk every day till mom got better. You know, so that was like, you didn't see that. But here, this white nun is walking through, you know, this community. And and she couldn't speak English, you know. She was the only one that, that was in the, she didn't teach. She was one of the ones that just worked in the convent. But she just, just helped out. And I just never forgot that, you know. Um, they were there for you. What language did she speak? She was German. German. Yeah. I want to ask a little more, just because it gives context for our, our family's connection to the church. But I want to ask you, Chris, I feel like you have a strong sense of how this church and church community has impacted your family. And I'm wondering if you could tell us and then have your mom respond. Yeah, well, for me, Sacred Heart, um, I mean, I, I cannot actually envision our family really, or even myself, without this parish and the school. I think in it, for me, there's so much to say, and it's very emotional uh, for me to think about because, you know, this was an alternative for black people at a time when we were subhuman to most white people. I would say in the South, but probably in a lot of ways, even to, to it, it, you know, in the rest of the country, we were subhuman, you know, not quite exactly full humans. And so t this was an alternative. It's like Mississippi only grudgingly created public schools for black and white kids. They didn't want public schools for anybody except for the rich planters kids historically. And so the public schools were subpar for both black and white people. You know, it was they were really, really the bottom of the barrel for black kids. And so this was an alternative. It was either burn up in a lifetime of ignorance or go to the public schools. To me, going to the public schools in the South and the, you know, before desegregation was almost like having these little kids look at a table full of fine food that they could never touch. You know, getting books that were 10 and 12 years uh, old after the white kids had run through them and tore them up and written all in them, you know, and, and you know, it, it was just it was just hard for people who were trying who were still just less than a hundred years out of slavery, you know? You know, so my my great grandmother's parents would have been born, if not in slavery, right after 
right after emancipation. And so the Catholic school presented, the Catholic school and the Catholic church presented an opportunity for black people to move into, I would say, humanity in a way, you know, because they could skirt. They, 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 the options that were given to us by white America was you either be a, a serf as you were designed to be, what you were brought here to be, a worker, to enrich someone else and then die, and hopefully you'll go to heaven, or you can go to the public schools and learn how to be maybe a little bit more of an upper-class servant, you know. But the Catholic schools represented an alternative to all of that. They could cut all of that and say, no, we get to be full humans. And so for me, what's powerful is that, and a lot of people don't understand, and I think who are not from the South, who will say that, you know, oh, well, they could have done more and that. But, you know, the stories that I grew up hearing were about these German nuns and 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 priests, you know, because SVD comes up out of Germany and, and those Nordic countries. And uh, Father Jansen, I guess, was German. And, uh, and, and then the Holy Ghost sisters, you know, doing this work for people touching black bodies, you know, taking care of young black people. They'd never seen that. You know, my ancestors had never seen that. And I think that that also brought people to the beauty of the Catholic faith, you know, as a universal faith. I think it moved us into the middle class, frankly. And I think that for a, a great percentage of black Americans, if they're honest about it, they were moved into the middle class through the work of the Catholic Church and Catholic missions. Well, sure, they could have been better. They could have been more radical. But we had nuns marching with Reverend King and, and, and priests and all, and people getting hosed, too. But the everyday work, the quiet work, where they weren't necessarily demonstrating or pulling down, they got themselves all killed, then, then, then you know, nobody would have benefited really in any way except, you know, an emotional attachment to, uh, you know, to a revolutionary past. But instead, they were quietly doing the work of educating people and providing opportunities that Mississippi said that you don't get to have, you know? And so for me, that is powerful beyond words. It is the, it's, it's, it made all of the difference. And it's a huge reason why I'm uh, still a, a Catholic today, you know? So, yeah, I could talk forever about it, but... <laughs> How do you feel about that assessment? Oh, I, I, I think it's pretty spot on what, what he's saying um, about the connection. Because just growing up here at this parish, when the uh, civil rights movement happened, it was different what was going on at the public school and what was going on in the Catholic school, our school. It was almost like two different things going on. For the longest, we didn't know that our nuns were white, which was crazy, like how we didn't know. But I just remember one of the nuns said, we don't treat you like what's going on there with the white people out there. Remember, we are white. And we didn't, we're like, you're not white. You know, because they wore habits. And one of the nuns took off her habit, and we just... We freaked out. We just screamed like, oh, my God, she is white. <laughs> we, we didn't know, you know. So I, I, I don't know. I know that changed my thinking, you know, about it. Like, oh, well, they, they were white all the time. And we were getting educated by them. Didn't never put that together until the civil rights movement happened, you know. And people were walking out, and the nuns were trying to get us not to walk out. Because they were saying, we have not 
mistreated you in the ways that the rest of what was going on on the outside of here was treating people. So Did you all walk out anyway? We did, just because it was, <laughs> you know, because you never get the to. Moment, the yeah, social it was, moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I just remember that being pivotal, that, um, that nun taking her habit off. <laughs> well, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit, Father Tom, about, we could go back to Michigan uh, for a moment. Tell us, uh, where are you from in Michigan? And what, tell us a little bit about your life growing up, uh, particularly um, your uh, history with gardens, since that's what we do. I was born in 42 in Emmett, Michigan, a small Irish town. In those days, 100% Irish Catholics by Port Huron, Michigan. And my dad died in 49, September 28, 1949. And my mother's side is Slovak. So I'm not going to get into how my mother met my dad. That's another story. But anyway, so after my dad died, in the summertime, my grandparents owned a dairy farm in Vassar, Michigan, Tuscola County. And Tuscola County to this very day is nearly all non-Catholic. And so I went to the farm. I was seven years old. I was six years old when my dad died. And I turned seven in November. Then we all went to the farm. My uncle and aunt picked us up with their 49 Chevy with their three, two children. And we packed all our stuff up for the whole summer. The five kids, my mother, my aunt and uncle, and their son and daughter. You can imagine that all in one car today. It was a 49 Chevy. Off we went to Vassar, and they would spend the whole summer up there. And that's how I learned gardening, because my job was, as a little boy, water all the tomato plants, pepper plants, cabbage plants, and everything else. I had to water them by hand. There was no hose. And then we had, I had to cover them up with, with paper from Detroit News or Detroit Times or what have you, free press, because there was frost maybe until June the 14th or 15th, and they were safe. So I learned gardening from my grandpa and my grandmother, and also from my mother too. So we had a huge garden because my mother had five children from 11 to four, and my mother had no social security because my dad died in 49 before social security came in for a private businessman. He owned a Texaco gas station. So we had no income coming in, hardly at all. So gardening was important. And there my mother and my grandma canned everything. You name it, they canned it. And then we went out in the woods with our buckets and picked strawberries, not strawberries, blackberries, a lot of blackberries, wild blackberries. Along the ditches, we picked up strawberries. And then those days, Eastern Michigan had a lot of cherry trees, a lot of orchards. Not today, but in those days, we would go out and pick cherries, peaches, what have you. And then my mother and my grandma canned everything. So we canned everything, the fruits and what have you. And on the farm, we had a lot of apple trees, and we put apples in the basement. We wrapped them up with paper so they wouldn't rot. And that's what we had in this, uh, to eat, fresh fruits. Today, you have banana, you have it every day. When I grew up, if you had banana for Easter and Christmas, that was it. You live off the land, and that's what we did. So when September came, we came back to Emmett, and my uncle bought all the canned goods, 
you make another trip with all the canned goods that we put in our basement. You name it, we canned, we canned the carrots, we canned the beets, we canned everything. Um, sauerkraut, we made your own sauerkraut, and you name it all. So that's how I learned gardening from a little boy, and my mother liked gardening too. So it's part of my blood. I always say this, gardening, the plants always say thank you. They never complain. So if you want to relax, go to your garden, pick out, pick out the hole, and just touch the earth, and that's Mother Earth. That's God's creation. And the Delta has the best land in the nation. For thousands of years, the Mississippi River flooded the Delta. And that's why we have such good land in the Delta. We should have hundreds of gardens in the city of Greenville. There should be no salvation in the city. There's enough land around here with empty homes that people could just plant just 10 feet by 10 feet. Your greens, a tomato plant, pepper plants. But we forgot how to even put our foot into a shovel into the dirt. We forgot how to even do that. We forgot how to even put seeds into the ground. Our young people have forgotten their roots, how gardening can relax you, and how touching the earth can relax you. Native Americans knew that. The old folks knew that. And I, that's why I stress gardening so much. It relaxes me. It keeps me healthy and strong, and no one complains. Are there, when you were growing up, were there any particular foods that your family raised in the garden connected to your Slovak or Irish ancestors? Well, I can't recall that. Um, we just grew uh, the regular vegetables, carrots, beets, cabbage, uh, sweet corn, uh, regular food. I can't recall anything from the cabbage a lot because of the sauerkraut. Mm. I can't recall anything special vegetables. No. Just like a lot of tomatoes, peppers. They did not plant any hot peppers like we'd have down here. Uh, rutabagas were more for the Irish side of the family, but my grandmother, uh, grandpa liked um, horseradish. Horseradish. We had the horseradish, which I don't care for too much. But other than that, just the regular, we had no mustard greens, that's down here, no collard greens, that's down here. A lot of spinach and a lot of um, cucumbers. Uh, it was a big garden, though, a good half an acre or more. And then we had another, another uh, garden for the watermelons and cantaloupe. We had no okra, that's down here, you see. So a lot of squash, a lot of squash, lots of Herbert squash, summer squash, all kinds of squash. Were there any foods, any particular foods that you remember from your mom's side of the family that they made that might have been distinct or different? If you were um, growing up in an Irish town and you were living with your Slovak family, were there any recipes or any things that you knew were different than what other kids were eating? Well, <clears throat> I'm not a cook. And my grandmother, she cooked on an old wood stove. That was my job to bring wood in, wood and coal stove. No recipes, but she made lettuce soup, fresh lettuce soup. She made that cream of lettuce soup. 
and cream of vegetable soup of all the fresh vegetables, peas, carrots, you name it all, potatoes, you name it all. And then at Christmas time, <clears throat> I can't even, so it's called luksha, I think it's in Slovak. It's sweet milk, whatever that is, and bread and poppy seed, a lot of poppy seed cake and everything. And there, that's what we had for Christmas Eve because it was fast day in those days. And therefore you had only one meal on Christmas Eve and that's what we ate. And we had uh, the meal about five o'clock, then we had to go out and milk the cows. It was a dairy farm. And so I, I learned how to milk the cows, pull the, the young calves out of the cow, and I had to, uh, we had no bull. We had a bull, and the bull was called Billy, and he charged Grandpa. It was, it was in October of 57, September of October 57, and uh, Grandpa always had a pitchfork. And he was going to breed Lily the cow. He did his thing, but the bull wanted some more sex, I guess. And he didn't want to go back in the barn and charge Grandpa. And Grandpa stabbed him right here in the forehead. And Grandpa says, Tomas, that's it. Artificial. And the trailer came Monday. The truck came. That was the end of our bull. So we had Holstein cows. And my job on the farm would be to milk the cows breed the cows, and fix the fences. I didn't drive the tractors much like to plow or to disc or anything else. It's strictly farming. And I loved it. And so I'm close to the earth, I'm close to animals, but not cats and dogs in the house. <laughs> what was one of the most beautiful memories you can remember from being a child on the farm that made you realize how close to the earth you were? Well, <clears throat> I think... Um, Seeing the birds and seeing the chickens, we had a lot of chickens, and I like to pet my ch pet chickens. And uh, my pet cow had a little pet Jersey cow, and her name was Josie. And I, I even trained her how to shake Paul like a dog, you know, and, uh, and play with the cows and play with the chickens and the cats and the dogs. But one day, I know uh, Grandpa and I were fixing fences. I was about eight, nine years old. Came upon a baby fawn in the woods. I said, oh, Grandpa, we have to take this fawn back to the farm. I, I'll, I'll raise it. And he says, oh, no, no, Tomash. The mother deer will come by. You don't take that. And Grandpa had great respect for conservation. He didn't use the word conservation, mm -hmm. but he had old John Deere tractor, and he would make sure that the birds like the meadowlarks and the bobolinks would finish nesting to cut his hay. He would even go around a site if he felt there were birds nesting and not to kill the baby birds. He loved nature, but he didn't say that, you know, like conservation and everything else. He loved nature. He was singing. I said, Grandpa, how do you keep awake? I said, I sing to God and his little John Deere tractor. Mm -hmm. And he loved nature. He loved his cows. Grandma would say, uh, he called, he says, they call each other old man, old lady in Slovak. Uh, and he says, uh, he, she would say, my grandma would say, you take care of your cows better than you took care of, you take care of me. Because he would wash the tails of all the cows. They had no dirt and the cows were clean. He knew them all. Mm -hmm. They never kick him. He, he would say, come boss. And all the cows would follow him. Like he was the shepherd. I say, come boss, they looked the hell at me, who in the hell are you? <laughs> you know, 
but he knew the, he knew each cow by name. We only had 32, so it was personal. And that's what I like about farming. It was personal, not like today with 10,000 chickens, a million chickens, or how many thousand cows, so impersonal. These cows don't even see the green grass. It, it's sad how we, we became too institutionalized with our animals, our chickens and our cows. I like to see cows eating green grass. I love to see the chickens picking the grass. In fact, the chickens in Emmett, we had about five chickens. The yolk was so strong that my sister didn't like them because so, the egg was so strong for eating all that grass from the, from the yard at home in Emmett. We had five chickens all the time, with all of my pets. So that's I love nature. And to this very day, I love nature. Uh, and I think we as Catholics should lead the nation in social justice and with global warming because Pope Francis is a great leader in that. He wrote an encyclical, Laudate Si, in which he tells the people that we are destroying Mother Earth. Mother Earth is a gift from God. God's created the world. And it's his gift for you, all of us, to enjoy and we are destroying Mother Earth. And Mother Earth speaks for God. I think God's crying that we are destroying His Earth, or her Earth. And I think this creation is so important, while well, gardening is so important, that we have to get back to the basic roots of, of life, where we can grow our own crops, help out nature, because this is God's Earth. He gave each of us the ability to take care of the earth. And that's why I think the Catholicism has a great theology of creation, and we should use it. But it's no one even preaches about God's creation, and we are destroying it by our own greed. Everything you said was so powerful, and for me is a deep inspiration. At our parish, we go to the... Uh, a Vincentian parish in, um, uh, you know, in Philly. Yes, apparently they are. We didn't know. I didn't know. So I looked. We lucked out on that. Say it again. The Vincentians, they're progressive people. Yeah. Yeah, they Usually are. Religious order people are more progressive. Yes. The Dawson priests are more. Yeah. 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 That's that has been our experience, and so we do. Um, we we definitely prayed of that God would send us to a parish. We prayed that God would send us to a, the right parish and it happened to be a Vincentian parish and I'm very grateful for it because I didn't know the Vincentians before. Didn't certainly didn't know that they were progressive. I'd gone to a Jesuit parish before. But in any case, um everything you said was there's so much there's so much uh, you know, there, I think, to talk about and and certainly we can't get to all of it, but you mentioned particularly that um we as Catholics have a a, a deep theology of creation. I, I have uh help to found a care of creation ministry at our parish where we work on environmental issues and we tie them into our spirituality. And I'm just curious, how do you think that that care of creation theology can be manifested in a city, in a place like Greenville? When I got, when I, if, you know, come back, uh, I'm always surprised at how little awareness there is about the earth, how much disconnection and separation as you mentioned there is between people who are these were all farming people if you throw a rock in greenville 
it will hit somebody who is who is uh, probably a first generation descendant of some farmers or at least of gardeners you know and indeed even when i grew up and we i left probably at 8 or 9 but people still all had gardens they all had a little almost everybody had some greens in their front yard or their side yard i'm just curious how do you think that that this care of creation theology that we have, and that very few priests are talking. We hear it all the time at our parish. It's what you know, but I, we realize that sometimes we forget because then when we go on vacation, we come to parishes like this where we hear it again. You know, so we forget that we're existing in this whole, especially the American Catholic Church, which is deeply conservative in a lot of ways and very much against our current Holy Father, uh, which is sad. But I'm just curious, how do you think that that care of creation theology can penetrate in a city like Greenville? That, doesn't know Catholics still, and and that frankly does not have a. We don't recycle in this city, you know. There's not a. There's not an awareness. If you talk to most people that are environmentalists, I mean, I think I bought my bag to Green to Walmart the other day. I bought we bought our own bags, and the woman, you know, there was a visible pause. She didn't know what to do, and so she just stopped bagging, you know, our things and let us because you know she was it was that sort of disconnection. How, how do you think that can change things here? Well, I know at Kroger's, I bring my own bags, uh, cloth bags. I, you, if I knew the answer, I'll be Jesus Christ himself. I think you deal, when you deal with creation, you must deal with yourself. If you love yourself and you see yourself image in created in God's image and likeness, then you see everything as God's creation too. I believe, now this is getting off maybe a deep end, that there's a deep spiritual crisis happening, not only in Greenville, but in our nation, especially with our young men and women, that even though we have over 300 some churches in this town, many, many people do not belong in any church at all. And that if you have no sense of who you are, no sense of spirituality, no sense of that you are loved by God, that you're loved by Jesus Christ, and really feel deep down in your heart, emotionally speaking, then you see the beauty of God's moon, God's earth, God's everything. But if you have no sense of spirituality, you have no sense of, of who you are as a human being, then it's difficult to get people off their fannies. Mm -hmm. I think the deepest sin in Greenville is apathy. Mm -hmm. Apathy is a sin. How can we get, and I think <coughs> your mother understands, to get people even <coughs> to plant, to take a hoe, and to get young people even involved? There was a deep sense of apathy, and this apathy goes through education, it goes through voting, because mm -hmm. Mississippi has the lowest turnout of 35%, the lowest of the whole nation, even Greenville. Um, so it all ties in together. There should be no desert of greenery in this city at all. With all the land that we got, there should be no trouble why people should have no fresh greens, no fresh tomatoes, no fresh cucumbers. 
This is in Detroit, Michigan, or Philadelphia, where there's snow, ice, and cold, only one garden. Down here, you have two gardens. What is blessing from God? And, I, and it really saddens me that there are so few people who take the initiative and say, you know, kids, I'm going to, let's get a hole and we will dig and plant and we will enjoy our fresh carrots. There's apathy that's killing the Delta. But that's my, my personal opinion. So, but you have done a few things in the neighborhood and in the community to help change that. Yeah, so we'd love to see one of your gardens, see your winter garden, yes. hear about the ways that you've tried to make change with the community. It wasn't much of a change because we had a garden across the street, and Ms. Bolden could tell you that parishioners did it. I couldn't get anyone, hardly anybody, to help me besides parishioners. And I'd rather leave it like that. Uh, and now we have a little community garden that Ms. Bolton can talk to on Union Street and Elizabeth, which I'm going to join too. Because when you have a garden, public garden, it's a public garden, people came to pick, but no one came to hoe. And you, you don't come to hoe, you don't enjoy the picking either. Now we can go outside and I'll show you my garden. Thank you. And that's what I'm yeah. It's sad. That's why I like Georgia. How she got all those people involved in Georgia. Father Tom is talking about Stacey Abrams, who ran for governor in Georgia in 2018 and 2022, mobilizing a huge amount of support in Georgia and beyond. Now we head to the garden. Anyway, this is the garden that I plant myself. Last year I had nothing at all because I was too up Bay St. Louis. This is the mustard. That's my carrots. Kale. My uh, lettuce. And over here is the mustard. And that's all mustard too. I got my peas, but they kind of froze, you see. See how they burnt up? Mm. Cold weather, peas can't take that. And I show over here. That's the asparagus here. Turnips. And that's your broccoli and cabbage. And that's it. And this is my little broccoli I picked this morning. And we are going to uh, cook it, eat it today. Now, Father, you know I have to ask you, as a southerner, I grew up with all of this kind of food, yes. the, the turnips and the mustard greens. And yes. and since I moved to the north, Philadelphia's a little farther east than Michigan, but similar northern culture, uh, nobody knows what a turnip green is. Nobody's heard of mustard greens. How did you, how did your stomach take to eating southern foods, and particularly foods with spice and pepper in them like we eat? I don't eat no spice and that's oh, okay. okay. That, simple as that. <laughs> if you eat a lot of spice, a lot of pepper and all, you spend more time in purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good I guess I'll be there for a thousand years. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. So the Hispanic people know that when they cook for me. But we always had turnips up, up north. Mm -hmm. But you know, at the tops, you always ate the bottoms. You ate the bottoms, right. Yeah. 
We had no mustard, uh, no collard greens, uh, but we always had turnips, lots of turnips. And you bake them or you boil them with nice butter and all, turnips. And this is my cabbage. My cabbage is not doing too good. I don't know what's beautiful. going on. The heads are coming on. And see, I just cut my broccoli over there, see? And now the broccoli will continue until the cold, cold weather. Because from those stems, it come little, little broccoli things. And you can eat them until until February or March, until the, unless it's cold, 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 and then you, you lose everything. But see over here, let's see. Yeah, I got one coming up over here yet. Right there. Two. I'll eat them again. They're See? beautiful. What's your trick for such perfect broccoli heads? I don't know. This is the best I had in a couple of years. You gotta have a mild fall. And hate to say it, it was a dry fall, which is good because you can do it with irrigation. It's too wet, it rots out. So I would say a mild fall, and you got to plant these before Labor Day. If you plant them after Labor Day, the cold weather can come in and kill everything. A couple of years ago, cold weather came in and killed everything. They were too tender. Yes, yes. So you have to plant, in my opinion, you got to plant these, let's say, about the last week of August. So you can pick them now, so in case cold weather comes, at least you got the broccoli. But from these stems will grow little little broccoli will come up. Little broccoli will come up. And those you can eat, eat, eat until thing. But cabbage you know yourself. You pick them once, that's it. Mm -hmm. Now next in the fall to springtime, I plant all beans in here. Because broccoli takes everything from the ground. Broccoli assumes all your nitrogen, cabbage too. Turnips. So I plant all this in beans. Green what kind of beans do you like to grow? Beans. Green beans. Yes. Oh, lima beans. Those two. Green or lima beans. What kind of limas? The speckled brown ones or the white ones? <sighs> yeah, green ones. Green ones. <laughs> the green lima beans. Neither. Bean. Green. <laughs> <laughs> Just the green. What the hell? They all the same. Same green beans. <laughs> so next spring, if God saves my life, I'm 80 years old, I want to plant something at you. I've got it over there. My tomato plants. I had no tomatoes last year. People picked them all. Well, I had. I was gone anyway. Two years ago, plant tomatoes over there and over across the road to okra. Okay. Because the okra needs okay. lots of space. Okay. Okra over there, and Elvis likes his hot peppers over there, and that's it. How'd you learn how to plant? Uh, you know, mustards. Did you learn from somebody down here how to grow in the Delta? No. Just trial and error. Just. Just throw the damn seeds in, that's it. <laughs> and when did you start growing mis uh, mustards and turnip greens? Well, I started growing them when I was in Louisiana. <laughs> See, the south. Right. The people give me mustard on the, and I also had potatoes on the south too. <laughs> so in Louisiana, I had two good gardens along Bayou Tesh, so I had a lot of mashed potatoes, uh, uh, red potatoes, and we had a lot of uh, mustard and turnips. And I had a lot of peas, and my cook there would make me homemade broccoli soup, homemade vegetable soup, and homemade pea soup. Mm. She was from the country. And she didn't eat the stuff, that's true, but she cooked them for me from 
up here, no recipe, and just cook everything. Yeah, so I even had a bigger garden in St. Martinville, mm -hmm. even a better garden. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, good. Well, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Father Tom. This, is, this has really been a delightful time. You want to close us out with a blessing? Yes, please. Near the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Almighty God, I give you thanks for these folks coming here to talk about gardening. Give you thanks, O oh God, that I'm able to plant gardening at my age, to have some nice broccoli today, fresh broccoli. Give you thanks for these fellows coming back to Greenville from Philadelphia, they have a safe trip back. And I pray for all the people who have gardenings this fall in the South. I pray for the people who are experiencing global warming with droughts, especially in Ethiopia, Somalia, Cameroons, and many other places where, where they're migrating because there's no water. So I give thanks to you, O God, that we have water in, in the Delta. And I pray that somehow or another our world leaders would take global warming seriously and follow the advice of Pope Francis. For we are all in this together. In the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much to Father Tom Mullally for sharing his story with us. And thank you for listening and sharing this episode of Seeds and Their People with your loved ones. Please share this episode with someone you love and subscribe to our show in your favorite podcast app. Thank you also for helping our seed keeping and storytelling work by leaving us a review and also ordering seeds, t-shirts, and more from our website. TrueLoveSeeds.com And again, please join our Patreon at Patreon.com slash TrueLoveSeeds. Your support keeps the episodes coming. Thank you so much to all of you who are already supporting. And remember, keeping seeds is an act of true love for our ancestors and our collective future. Okay, you've made it all the way to the end and now for a special treat. We're bringing back our newest member of the team on the podcast, our son slash nephew, Brian. He was so excited about sharing with you that he asked me to record more. So here are some more facts and imaginations and ideas and so on about plants with Brian. Enjoy. Bonus track. <laughs> so... When I'm sometimes with you, well, when I'm always with you, I see seeds. And I think, hmm, I think, hmm, maybe I should pick them up and maybe grow them somewhere. And I ask my Uncle Owen when I, I ask him, could you hold these seeds for me while I pick some more up like I did when we were in the woods today? And he said, yes, sure. How did we get the seeds out of the plant? We stomped on the, we didn't stomp on the seeds. Well, we stomped on their protection. What was it? It was a seed pod. It was a tree that had these like pods around the seeds. What was that thing called again? A seed pod. No, no, no. What was the tree called again? I don't know. It was kind of like a locust, like a tree than the bean family. 
So I thought that maybe we should grow it, but then Uncle Owen told me I didn't know what I didn't realize what tree it was, and he told me that it was so big. So I said, "Could we just take the seeds and see if any bugs can eat seeds like this?" And then he said, "I don't think any bugs can eat these giant seeds." And then. And then I just said, "Could we just take them, please?" And then he said, "Yes,、yeah, sure." Okay, that's true. And then, what about in the summer when we're in the park or we're walking past gardens and there's? How do we know when there's ripe seeds on the plants? Well, we know that there's ripe seeds on the plants because there's a flower in there. It might be like a little potty flower or something. Always check. From a little potty flower or a other flower. Potty like it has pods. Yes, sir. Or it's going to the potty. Ah <laughs> no, sir! Not like it's going to the potty. Okay, so it has seed pods. So how do you recognize a seed pod? A seed pod usually has like you can recognize a seed pod from telling like stomp on it first. And if there's seeds coming out of it, try to pick one up and try to grow it. I have a other cool flower that you can touch, and then the seed sometimes pops in blue. That means it's good. And、um, sometimes when you touch the flower, it can.、Um, Not explode, but it can like open its flower. When you squeeze the sides, it can burst open and into blue.、Oh, the and seed, the seed can. Oh, the seeds fly away. It's called jewelweed. Jewelweed, and and when their seeds are really ready, the the what do the fruits look like when the seeds are ready to pop out? I think I don't remember. Do they look like long and thin? Are they、Wait. like fat and pregnant? I think they look fat and pregnant.、Mm-hmm. Fat and what? Fat and preg pregnant. Pregnant. <laughs> That's true. The fatter they are, the more likely they're going to explode. And why do you think they send their seeds so far away from themselves? I'm trying to think about that. Hmm. Maybe because they want more seeds. To grow like them, and I have a other cool leaf. Well, it's gonna turn into a flower or a fruit or something. But I have a other cool leaf to share with you that lives in California. What's that? I don't remember what it's called. But when you touch the leaf, it closes. Oh, a sensitive plant. It's a, it's a mimosa. It's like related to mimosa tree. In the leaves, yeah, they're called sensitive plant. Cause wh- why do you think they call it a sensitive plant? Because they can, because they, because they, because they can、um, close themselves. When you touch them. Yeah, they're sensitive to your touch. And、um, I think that's all. Oh no, that's not all. I need to tell you. Certain bugs um go on plants. 
the the bug the only bug that goes on any plant it wants is a termite little teeny tiny you might want a spider to kill it or a ladybug but not ladybug the miraculous curl oh okay not the superhero ladybug uh, do you mean um aphids or are you talking about termites aphids okay and what does an aphid look like a aphid looks super tiny so tiny sometimes you can't even see it and what'd you learn about the relationship between ants and termites ants and termites so i remember but this is disgusting i uncle owen told me this um have you ever heard of what is it called again um i think a sugar oh honeydew honeydew Honeydew. So, this is disgusting, but it comes out of ants' behinds. <laughs> Not the ants. The ants pull it out of whose behinds? So it they they pull it out their out of their own out of their own behind. No. <laughs> okay. Ants milk the aphids. Okay, so they ants they milk the aphids. They, they like to get the honeydew out of the aphids. And I'm going to have to fact check this because I said it comes out of their behinds, but I don't actually remember. Ew. It might come out of their behinds. Let's see. <laughs> okay, let's find this. How is honeydew? Aphids are small insects that live from plant sap. In essence, honeydew is the excrements of aphids, or put more bluntly, aphid poop. Ew, that's disgusting. I know that's disgusting. But that's how sometimes termites survive. Not termites, ants. Ants survive. Okay, on that note, thank you for sharing all of your wisdom with us, Brian. You're welcome. Okay, we'll see you next time. See you later on the radio. Winking.